Before I start, I just wanted to give a content warning. I'm going to be discussing trauma in the upcoming episode, including sexual assault, and I just wanted anyone who needed to to know that so they could steer clear if necessary. Stone won't fall until the podcast of the dragon comes to your device. Hey everybody, my name is Morgan. You might know me as the Grey Warder on Twitter and Discord. Welcome to the second episode of Podcast of the Dragon. I was trying to think of a way to give you an introduction to this episode and give it the weight and gravitas that it deserved, so I figured I would present it to you like I would an essay. So I give to you Trauma, Shatter Logos, and the Breaking of the Fellowship. Trauma, Shatter Logos, and the Splitting of the Party. Trauma, Shatter Logos, and when things went from really, really bad to so much worse. If I'm doing an episode where I'm going to discuss the character's trauma, whether it pertains specifically to their trip through Shatter Logoth or in a broader sense, I need to clarify from the beginning that I am not a professional. Um, I have plenty of experience when it comes to therapy because I've been on the receiving end of scores of hours of it, but I have never received therapy specifically for trauma. And while I've experienced traumatic things, I think we all have, none of my traumatic experiences were rooted in anything that was violent or something that included like extreme fear. While I've done research on trauma specifically for this episode, it's internet research, there's nothing academic behind it, and a lot of the things I'm going to say are going to be based on supposition. I don't want anyone to put too much weight into what I have to say, and I don't want anyone to get upset by anything I say by thinking that I'm speaking as if I know what I'm talking about. I have ideas, I have opinions, I have conclusions that I draw, but I am by no means an expert. I'm not particularly educated about this. I don't want you to think that I think that I know what I'm talking about beyond my most base educated guesses, but I am speaking as a layperson and that is all. I've had a few moments of existential fear, but beyond close calls with accidents and a bout of cancer, which didn't end up being particularly serious, 
and which I managed to make enough fun of that when I talk to people about it, I say it was an interesting experience. Most of my fears are of my own making. I engage in a lot of empathy exercises, like the one I'm engaging in right now, where I imagine being in a terrible situation in an effort to, I think, inure myself or to train for a potential tragedy. And I think a lot of people do that. I mean, why do we like our apocalyptic fiction? Most, I want to say, Americans and I apologize right now. I know many people listening to this are not Americans, and that's my dumb American ass reflexively being an American exceptionalist. Uh, I apologize. We Americans are so fucking stupid, and we have this culture where we think we're such hot shit, and we don't even think about it, and please... If I ever do it, call me out on it, and don't hesitate to tell Americans that we are stupid and assholes, we deserve it, um, and yeah, I apologize, and I digress. I think it's human nature. If you're living in a position of privilege where you have shelter and ready access to food and few fears for your general safety and well-being, you're able to put yourself in a position where you want to live those things, whether you do it vicariously through media or whether you do what I do and just daydream yourself into stressful, fucked up situations. As fucked up as it has been, there's a lot I've been enjoying about the coronavirus thing. And I know that that is also privilege speaking. Um, the novelty of it makes things feel real in the way having cancer did or the occasional near-miss accident that I have had. It's something about knowing how alive you are in the mix, in the midst of fear and chaos and uncertainty and that's something Jordan expounds upon a great deal over the course of the series. There's an energy and a thrill that comes to it. And you you get to test your own mettle and know, you know, am I going to rise to this occasion? I'm frightened. I'm stressed. You know, will I rise or will it overwhelm me? Um, but when it comes to general like dangers of life you know i only need a little bit of existential excitement i don't need to dodge fireballs or fight monsters you know fear of plague and future economic uncertainty is plenty for me the scene in shatter logoth didn't strike me as much as i think it should have the first time i read it and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. The battle before it and the scene on the Camelin Road are incredibly stressful. And because of anxiety, I have a hard time reading stressful scenes, particularly the first time. Um, and when I'm reading them for the first time, I tend to read them fast and sloppily. I will rush through them just to, like, 
get past it. I will totally spoil things for myself. If something is incredibly intense, I'll flip ahead. I will flip ahead pages. I will flip ahead even chapters. I know people who can't bear spoilers, who think that that is appalling. Uh, my wife thinks that spoilers are the death of things, and the idea that I would look that far ahead in the order in order to decrease the amount of tension for myself so that I can even, you know, enjoy a book that's almost offensive to her. I mean, to her, to, to see what's going to happen ahead of time, to skim ahead, like, ruins the whole purpose of the book. She's like, why even bother at that point? It's like, because otherwise I can't even relax enough to enjoy it. It just doesn't spoil it for me. If I can reduce the tension enough that I can, you know, it lets me read it more thoroughly. I can relax enough to engage with the scene better and take in more. The scenes before and during Shatter Logoth are so creepy and just the tension winds up so much that the first time I read them, I think I was probably just scrambling to get through them. And so I don't think I took the time to really just stop and think, wow, this is terrible. I also think that I was distracted by the Perrin point of view. It was weird, you know, the last episode I said that I didn't even realize Rand was the Dragon Reborn when I read the first book, which is embarrassing and probably nearly unforgivable. Uh, my only excuse is that I didn't know that it was part of a series, which maybe isn't even an excuse. I don't know. But I think part of it was that I was caught up in the unreliable narrator to the point where I believed Rand. Like, I was caught up in a pure Rand POV, and so it never occurred to me that he was the Dragon Reborn, because it never would have occurred to him. Like, I was as lost in the story as he was, and I wasn't even trying to read it critically, because I was so caught up in his journey. I remember it switching to Perrin and finding it strange and jarring and wonderful because it was so unexpected and he was so different in flavor from Rand. I I really like Perrin. I want to murder him a lot in later books, but at the time I really enjoyed being in his head and seeing how different he is and the different way that he thinks. And it was just such a shock. It was like being in a different book all of a sudden, so that it almost like took me out of the scene or maybe just changed the creep factor because it was from Rand's like tense, immediate fear to Perrin's more like measured fear because Perrin is so much more thoughtful and I think that also kept me from really appreciating the full horror of the scene. So things were preventing me from getting that full impact. The way everything just goes with the Camelon Road, the horns going before and behind as they're running from the Trollocs and they flee up through the hills of Absher and then they're trying to hide and shatter Logoth. 
and you know not even thinking about what happens with Mordeth and Matt and the dagger but just the actual fleeing for their lives before 500 Trollocs and barely getting away and then finding no choice but to hide in the horrible creepy murder city so much really good stuff happens in the eye of the world that doesn't get reflected on Rand thinks about it when he returns in Lord of Chaos with the Ogier, with Elder Hamon and Speaker Kovril and Aerith when they go to weave the trap on the way gate. But his thoughts mostly are about the dagger and how Matt started on a journey that led him to the gateways and to Roydian and where he went on from there and then how they got separated that night. And when he saw Perrin again, he had golden eyes and secrets and how he looked really sad. And beyond that, it's just that he says that there are memories about it that he'd really rather not think about. Except in the immediate aftermath of that night, you never really hear about it from Nynaeve or Perrin. And Matt only thinks about it as it's embodied in the dagger. And Egwene never thinks about it at all. And I really wish they would. You know, I wish that they would, at least like in The Great Hunt or something, in the relatively immediate aftermath of their flight from the two rivers and everything that happens, I wish that they would examine their feelings about it more because they have to have a lot of them. It's a horrible night, a really terrible, fucked up night where awful things happen. And I want them to think about it because I'm a giant girl and I want people to examine their feelings. But maybe it's better that they don't. And one of the things that makes this series so eminently rereadable is the fact that I go through and I read, I reread scenes and I ask, you know, how is he experiencing this? You know, how is Matt feeling in this scene? What is Egwene thinking? I really try to empathize with them and not having RJ Put as much description into people's emotions as he does into their clothes and the cornices in the room. You know, maybe that's okay. You know, maybe I can be a giant girl and in my own writing I can describe people's emotions. And in RJ's writing I can live vicariously through the characters and torment myself with empathy exercises by imagining myself in their shoes in these horrifying situations and what their emotions would be. And then I can talk about it with you people. I'm going to look at all eight characters and imagine what kind of traumatic experiences that they might have been through before winter night. And I'll start with the quote-unquote grown-ups first because that's the easiest. So let's begin with the badassiest of the badasses. Lan, or Lon, I called him Lon for the longest time, and then I thought that I had corrected myself, and I started calling him Lan, and was even consistently calling him Lan, and then I just recently saw a tweet from, I think, dragonmount.com that said that his name actually was Lon, and so now I have to decide whether I should correct my correction or just say fuck it. Lon was raised to be a soldier. So he fought Trollocs from a young age. 
He knows the fear of a murderer. He's killed murderer. He's killed men. He fought in the Aiel War. He's very fatalistic about death. And he expects to die. And he thinks of his bond to Moraine as almost like a postponement of his inevitable death as he woos it like a bridegroom woos a bride or what, whatever the fuck. You know, can you hear my eyes rolling? I get that Lan is supposed to be a noble figure, but he seems really melodramatic. And it's not even that he's written that way so much. Jordan does a good job of making the borderland culture kind of like a keystone of that sort of honor and duty so that it's not just Lon himself being a drama queen. But if I were having a beer with him and he talked about his unending war with the shadow, I'd just be thinking, dude, get a life. Which is perhaps unkind of me, since we're talking about trauma. And what could be more traumatic than having your parents and your country die and be raised with a sword in your hand and expect to avenge what cannot be defended? I mean, that's really fucked up. And so maybe I'm heartless to be impatient with it. But I'm a very practical person, and my attitude is kind of your country is dead. That can't be changed. You have this important duty with this Aes Sedai. You're out there protecting her. You guys are doing important works. There are other ways to fight the shadow. You know, go and find them. Stop being ridiculous. You sound like an asshole. Moraine is also a soldier. Aes Sedai have this utter sense of exceptionalism and there's no way around it they're assholes and it shows itself to be very problematic throughout the series and the way that I've gotten to the point of being able to look at them and not just be so frustrated as I think about the training that they do in particular the testings as they go through the Tirangriel to become accepted and then the test to become Aes Sedai and the kind of physical and mental rigor that it takes. Um, you have to be the best of the best. You have to really want it. It takes so much out of you. And when you look at it like that, it's almost like a form of special forces training and so maybe when you look at it like that it's like the Aes Sedai or lady mage special forces they're like the army rangers of female channelers with these exacting standards and they think they're real hot shit and they're cocky and they have big egos and looking at it like that it doesn't make them any less assholes and it doesn't make their exceptionalism any less problematic, but it does make a bit more sense. Most of RJ's characters, I think, are modeled after some manner of soldier. Moraine's been through some hardcore shit. She's been near death more than once. 
She's faced Trollocs. She's been in kill-or-be-killed situations. She's had to kill without the power. She spent 20 years looking for the Dragon Reborn. You know, she she's a soldier. She may be a soldier in a silk dress, but there's no doubt. I don't think for a second there's any doubt that RJ sees her in that light. And then when it comes to Tom, Shadow Spawn are out of his purview. When they crest the hills and he sees them, he says blood and ashes. You know, all he has are knives. You know, he has to bring knives to a Trolloc fight. But what he does have is this powerful urge to protect young people. Tom's major trauma is that he failed his nephew. And I don't believe that he signed on to this trip because he didn't want to travel by himself. He signed on to this trip because he was up in that loft in the barn and heard that the Aes Sedai was taking these young men. And he was like, I don't trust her and I don't trust what she wants with these kids. And I'm going to come along and do what I can to protect them because they need to have somebody on their side. And it's a theme that is revisited. It's said straight out at least once in the book, but it's visited time and again that it is easier to be brave when someone needs you. And for Tom, the need that those young men have for him is enough for him to be able to look the Trollocs in the eyes and not back down because his trauma with his nephew is so strong. The Emmons Field 5 are different from the other three. So far as we know, none of them really have anything major as far as violent traumatic events before winter night. I'll start with Perrin because we have absolutely nothing that we know of. With Matt, the best I could come up with with Matt was that he thought that someone was drowning and so he jumped in to save them because he was so afraid that they were going to die. And that could be a traumatic experience. With Rand, Rand had the loss of his mom and that's a big deal. He's a shepherd so he's had to deal on his own with wolves and I can't remember what book it is but he describes a situation where he has a weak sheep that gets separated out from the flock by wolves and he can't get a clear shot with his bow and he can't leave the rest of the flock and the wolves end up killing the sheep and he his inner narrative talks about how the memory of it still turns his stomach. And that seems pretty traumatic. Egwene, she had breakbone fever when that epidemic went through. She was sick and Nynaeve healed her. And while she was young enough that it may not have been as scary, her brother-in-law died of it. He died of it, and so did either her niece or nephew. 
so she had close family killed from it, and so she may very well have been very frightened while she was sick. And there's another mention of a different epidemic that went through the two rivers um, that ended up killing 11 people, a spotted fever epidemic. And Doral Barron, who was the wisdom at the time, had told people to tie kerchiefs soaked in brandy around their faces. And Egwene mentions how for years afterward she equated the smell of brandy with fear. With Nynaeve, it's a little more complicated. Nynaeve's an orphan. But during her acceptance tests, the way back for what was, she's naked in a maze with Agonor chasing her, shouting filthy things that basically boil down to threats of sexual assault. Because it was for what was, and her second pass through the rings for what is, is her village where the evil wisdom is poisoning people, I concluded that she had some manner of trauma with a sexual assault in her past. Otherwise, it seems like the village would be what was, and the thing with Agonor would be what is because her experience with Agonor had occurred only about a month before she went to the White Tower. I can see why RJ only wanted to allude to it, though, because sexual assault makes Robert Jordan incredibly uncomfortable. He acknowledges its existence, but for the most part, he doesn't want to touch it. And... That makes sense, I think, probably because of his wartime experiences. I think he probably came across some very ugly things while he was in Vietnam, and I think that it squicked him out really badly, and he just didn't want to talk about it very much. If the most he ever wanted to do was barely allude to that about Nynaeve, I understand, and... You know, it's also kind of good because that's a really tired trope for something like that to make a character strong and define her and be something for her to overcome and everything. It's like, fuck you, dude. You don't need that. If it's true that her test went the way that it did and the pass through the ring into what was is her being naked in a maze with a horrible creeper because of something bad that happened to her in the past, it ends up being an empowering situation because she finds the one power. She finds anger, and anger empowers her. I feel like maybe he wanted to acknowledge that this happens to women, but we are not going to make it a centerpiece to her character. It's going to be her private business, will allude to it, and you can either pick up on it or not, but she doesn't have to talk to you about it, because it's really not your business. And I think it's nice. Nynaeve's angry about all kinds of things, and it doesn't have to be that one thing defining her. Because of the way RJ did her acceptance test, I choose to believe that he staged it that way because he was alluding to a sexual assault in her past, that seems to be the only way that it's logical. And obviously, yes, that would be incredibly traumatic. Regardless of how previous traumas might have shaped them, 
The Emmonsfield Five have very different personality traits in the face of serious issues. Perrin, and one of the reasons I really like him, is very practical. He's the hammer, the iron, you're given kind of guy. He's very much what it is. Equaine is much more coolly practical. She doesn't waste time feeling sad about whatever it is that she has to accept. She accepts and she adapts. This is the way it is, and I'm going to roll with it. And that is one of the reasons she's my absolute favorite. Egwene is really good about attitude adjustments. She's not just good about making the best of things. She's good at doing it and being reasonably happy. And that is a wonderful trait to have. Matt is just avoidant. I mean, that's... we all know that. Rand... I think that Rand is prone to depression. The foundation's been laid his whole life, and I have a lot more opinions on that that I'll go into later, but I think that he had all the building blocks that he needed for mental illness that could be there even without channeling. And Nynaeve is angry, and maybe that's shaped by trauma... Maybe that's just who she is. It might be an innate passion, but it's also how she fights. She fights her powerlessness with anger, and anger opens the door to the power. And then comes Winter Night. The boys had been really scared by the Myrtle when they saw it earlier. They really got to experience that whole look of the eyeless fear. I mean, Rand couldn't even look away. Like, he was walking backwards, and if he hadn't tripped, he probably couldn't have broken his gaze. And I sometimes wonder what would have happened if he hadn't. Like, would the Fade have made the choice at that point to kill him? It was just a very impacting experience. So much so that when a giant monster, a trollic, bashes his door down, he feels relieved that it's not the Dark Rider. Rand is the only one we know for sure had a really intense close encounter with Trollocs. They attacked the Forge and the Lewin's house first, and then the Coffins, and we know that Harold and Alsbit Lewin had a personal encounter, because Alsbit cracked one's skull with a frying pan. But I don't think that Perrin was there when that happened because his family was in from the farm. They weren't home when their farm was attacked. And his family had like 14 people in it. And I think it was too big for them to be at the Lewins house. The Lewins are a childless couple. So I think that their house was relatively small, probably just big enough for them and their apprentice and no way that they could host his great big family. I think that with Perrin, he may not have had a real close encounter with the Trolloc then. I think he may have just stayed out of their way. And then once Moraine and Lon managed to get them all to fuck off out of the village, he may have carried wounded and then fought fires. As far as Matt, I don't know if Matt was home when the farm got attacked or not. With Egwene and Nynaeve, they did triage. They probably stayed out of the way and then got straight in to start doing, you know, medical work on people. 
Um, you know that some people died because Tom Marilyn said as much, but you don't know who or how many. When Rand first comes into the village, Harold Lewin helps him carry the litter, and Rand sees that Egwene has been, like, messed up by the experience. Um, the quote is, Her eyes stared at something in the far distance. Dark circles made them appear even larger than they actually were. Then she saw Rand and stopped, drawing a shuddering breath. So the experience was not unimpacting for her. And you know it's haunting to Nynaeve, too, because when she wakes up on the banks of the RNL the morning after Shatter Logoth, she compares Winter Night and the battle before Shatter Logoth with Mashadar. So the Trollocs really fucked her up, and it wasn't until she saw a horrible, mindless murder mist that she began to see, whoa, no, that's something to really be afraid of. That and the fact that when the Trollocs chased her and then suddenly stopped and realized, oh, she doesn't smell like the people we actually came for, and she began to see, oh, no, the Aes Sedai is right, she's not actually messing with me or lying to me. These monsters really are after specific people, and it's not just whoever. After Winter Night begins this gigantic stress fest, if Nynaeve ever gives herself a break, because it doesn't sound like she's the type of person who ever shuts off, she might get a night's sleep before she follows the kids the following morning. Because it might have been the morning before it was discovered that they'd gone missing. But as far as everyone else, I mean, Rand got to sleep the afternoon away, but to be fair, he didn't sleep the night before. As they flee the two rivers, they're pursued the whole way, and of all of them, only Egwene seems truly unfazed. She's the only one who seems to see anything positive. You know, it's scary and stressful, but she's also chasing a dream. Like, she's getting the hell out. And I think that, you know, she had been planning on leaving the Two Rivers anyway. She was training to be a wisdom. But all of a sudden, you know, Winter Night comes and the Trollocs attack. And this whole new career path opens up to her. Because the minute that she saw Moraine throwing lightning balls, she had to have said to herself, I've got to learn how to do that. Holy shit. You know, that makes dispensing herbs look like nothing. You know, I can't even think about doing that now. Who wants to do that? Yeah, I bet she never looked back. Of all the people fleeing, Egwene was the one that was least troubled by it. And Rand noticed, you know, he looks over while the Drakkar is screaming overhead as they're fleeing in the night heading toward Terran Ferry. And yeah, it's an unreliable narrator, and he's angry with her. So maybe her face isn't really shining with joy and excitement as he's perceiving it. But for Egwene, getting out of the two rivers is important enough that it might actually be worth the risk of being eaten or killed by horrifying monsters. Tom and Egwene were the only ones who were not shocked by Moraine sinking the ferry. The boys were really stunned and troubled by it. I think Egwene probably thought it was fucked up. She probably thought it was 
very unexpected. Like, it probably didn't occur to her that Moraine would do it, but she trusted Moraine's judgment. Tom, I think, probably thought that it made perfect sense. Even if he didn't trust Aes Sedai, he was like, yeah, we're being pursued by these horrible, scary things, and yeah, it makes perfect fucking sense. She got all of the haulers off the ferry, and then they threw a whole bunch of gold at the ferryman, so... Problem solved. I don't think for a second that Tom thought that that was an ill-intentioned thing. So I don't feel like he found the sinking of the ferry particularly traumatic the way that the boys did. And then they've got a week of low tension where they're getting on the way to Barlon. And I've read some things about trauma, and I could try to interpret the different behaviors of the characters, but I don't think RJ did research and then wrote them. I think he wrote characters behaving how he knew soldiers to behave while experiencing some downtime when there's mild tension, but they're basically out of danger for the moment. So you've got Matt, who relaxes, Rand feels anxious and daydreams about being home. Perrin is trying to keep like a practical level of threat awareness when Matt is all like, I think we've like lost them finally, Perrin says. If they're gone, why does Lon keep scouting? The boys are also afflicted with that horrible traumatic dream in Barlon. Ishamael breaks the rats' backs. And I don't know if he's able to do that because they spy for the shadow or if Robert Jordan hadn't totally figured out the rules for how much dream shards or Teleron Riyadh can affect the real world. Or maybe he had all of that worked out, but he couldn't find a way to explain it in a logical, non-expository way. There was no good place to stick it in there. But regardless, that dream and the the dream itself was horrible enough the fact that all three of them had it was even more terrifying but the physical manifestation of the rats with their backs broken holy shit that's awful and ranch sees the murderal in the inn and he's convinced that he'll die it swings its sword at him and just stops at the last minute like it just makes this point to terrorize him before telling him that he belongs to the great lord of the dark. And after he's almost calm talking to Nynaeve. And just says there was a fade. It was in the hall with me. Then Lon came. And I don't know if that's actually what they call a blunted affect. Where you're just not as. You don't appear as phased by things. I don't suspect that Jordan did research for that either. I suspect he was probably just adapting a way that he had behaved after nearly being killed. There's a couple of days along the Camelin Road where they're fine, and then you get the scene with the horns. Every single time I read it, no matter how many times I've read The Eye of the World, it's awful. It, like, immediately makes my heart start beating faster it's so stressful. I mean, there's just something about a horn. It's like an alarm clock from hell. And as they're sounding, Rand is counting the miles. 
and Lon leaves to go scout and see just how bad it is. And Nynaeve's like, hey, can't we fucking go faster? Because obviously they're catching up. And Moraine's like, you know, hey, why do you think they're blowing the horns? And there's just that anxiety ratcheting up. And I think about it like RJ was a helicopter gunner. I've read a good bit of stuff about the Vietnam War. And I know that infantry patrols felt a lot of fear and anxiety like an extended amount of it while they were out um but flying in a helicopter where you can't get away or hide and you're in constant fear of being shot down there's nowhere to duck you can't set down easily when you've got a jungle canopy you know underneath you all you can do is shoot back and try to fly away I'm wondering if he was trying to put the feel of that kind of attention in the scene. Because just imagining, whenever I watch movies that take place in the Vietnam War, or really any kind of a military movie where someone's in a helicopter where they can get shot at, it makes me feel so wound up. Because that has to be terrifying. And then they're leaving the Camelin Road. Once they know there are Trollocs in front and Trollocs behind, do we go north? Do we go south? And they're trying to go up and down the hills after they decide they have to go north. The Trollocs are gaining, and they get to the point where they have no choice but to turn and fight. Lon probably knew from the way the Trollocs were structured and organized that the Murderal had to have linked with them. So he launches himself down the hill, hoping to kill it before any of the kids can be harmed or taken. But they were in a terrible position, and it got to the point where there was no way they could avoid going into Shatter Logoth. And it's really awful when you think about it, because Moraine was desperate for them not to go there. She showed emotion, saying no, when Lon first suggested it, and... Moraine doesn't show emotion. She doesn't raise her voice. She's calm. But she showed emotion because the idea of going in there frightened her. If I had to guess, I would say that Lon was prepared to go to Shatter Logoth from the time they set out down the Camelin Road. He thinks ahead. He's prepared. He's got cool campsites set ahead that have food and torches and all kinds of stuff stuck in them. If you re if you listen, sorry, to the Wheel Weaves podcast, it's one of my favorite Wheel of Time podcasts. The hosts are named Danny and Brett. It's a first time reader podcast. Uh, Danny refers to Lon as Safety Officer Lan, and uh, I have no doubt that it's a really appropriate nickname and he was thinking of all the eventualities uh he's a contingency planner and he didn't hesitate the moment that he knew they had trollocs on either side to say there's a place the trollocs won't go he says nothing so long as they're just being driven but the minute that they stop he brings it up he comes out from scouting to tell them there's at least three-fifths of Trollocs coming, maybe five, each led by a half-man. They are spread out to drive us before them, Lon said, with scouts quartering ahead of the main parties. 
driving us toward what, Moraine mused. As if to answer her, a horn sounded in the distance to the west, a long moan that was answered this time by others, all ahead of them. Moraine stopped Aldeeb. The others followed her lead. Tom and the Emmons field folk looked around fearfully. Horns cried out before them and behind. Rand thought they held a note of triumph. "'What do we do now?' Nynaeve demanded angrily. "'Where do we go?' "'All that is left is north or south,' Moraine said, more thinking aloud than answering to the wisdom. "'To the south are the hills of Absher, barren and dead, and the Terran with no way to cross and no traffic by boat. To the north we can reach the R&L before nightfall, and there will be a chance of a trader's boat.' Moraine is probably already spinning out in her head the plan that they'll reach the river and make rafts to get across. But Lan has no doubt already thought ahead and thought, should worse come to worse, we technically have available to us the worst safe house ever. It's kind of like running from bullies into a haunted house, but Lan had seen the Trollocs because he went scouting. And I think his concrete picture meant he knew there was no way they weren't going to have to shelter and shatter Logoth. And he wanted her to just concede right away because it was fastest and easiest. But she was emphatic about saying no, so they went north, but at an angle away from the murder city. But they get to the point where they don't have any choice. They have the battle where Lon kills the Murdral, but that's only a quarter of the Trollocs. They keep running north and angling toward the river, but too quickly more catch up to them. But still the horns came ever nearer, until the guttural shouts of pursuit were heard whenever the horns paused, until eventually the humans reached a hilltop, just as Trollocs appeared on the next hill behind them. The hilltop blackened with Trollocs, snouted, distorted faces howling, and three murdral overawed them all. Only a hundred spans separated the two parties. Rand's heart shriveled like an old grape. Three. The Murdral's black swords rose as one. Trollocs boiled down the slope, thick, triumphant cries rising, catchpoles bobbing above the catchpoles bobbing above as they ran. Moraine climbed down from Aldeeb's back. Calmly she removed something from her pouch, unwrapped it. Rand glimpsed dark ivory, the Angrial. With Angrial in one hand and staff in the other, the Aes Sedai set her feet, facing the onrushing Trollocs and the Fade's black swords, raised her staff high, and stabbed it down into the earth. She does her fancy earthquake and firewall, knowing it will take almost the last of her strength. It fucks them up, and it gives the party time to get out of sight so she can use her last trick and lay her false trail with the power, and at this point she's accepted that she won't be able to raise wards for them to build rafts until she's rested, and at this point they don't have a choice, and so into Shatter Logoth they are doomed to go. In the after-effects, after Moraine has made the firewall and laid her false trail, but before they get into the city, Rand is watching Nynaeve giving Moraine herbs and looking all satisfied and smirky. He did not really care what the wisdom was up to. 
He rubbed the hilt of his sword continually, and whenever he realized what he was doing, he stared down at it in wonder. So that's what a battle is like. He could not remember much of it, not any particular part. Everything ran together in his head, a melted mass of hairy faces and fear. Fear had heat. It had seemed as hot as a midsummer noon while it was going on. He could not understand that. The icy wind was trying to freeze beads of perspiration all over his face and body. He glanced at his two friends. Matt was scrubbing sweat off his face with the edge of his cloak. Perrin, staring at something in the distance and not liking what he was seeing, appeared unaware of the beads glistening on his forehead. Jordan's experience in battle obviously didn't involve hairy, bestial faces— but he was able to impart the sense of fear and heat and chaos and everything running together and you can't even think. And then they get into the city. Now, I'm not going to blame their behavior on her, but Moraine had spent enough time with Two Rivers people at this point. And she should have known to tell the boys not to wander off. She should have known that these people have no common sense and they're stubborn. So I kind of feel like their wandering off is more than a little bit on her and Lon, and maybe especially on Nynaeve, who assumes responsibility for them by acting like they're not old enough to be out on their own. Like, she legit followed because she felt like they were helpless and needed somebody to take care of them. But Moraine, who actually knows what's at stake, both because she knows that one of them is the Dragon Reborn and also because she knows all of the horrible things that are in this horrible murder city, should have said something. When it comes to stubborn people who don't trust you, you have to give them information or they're going to do what they want. You have to give logical reasons to do what you said. Because I said so is not a reason. I don't do anything because somebody said so. Um, it's like, you know, go fuck yourself. I mean, they're too polite to say go fuck yourself, but it's basically the same thing. Partly it's the problem that Moraine never tells anyone anything. She's Kyrianan, she's Aes Sedai, and if you've read New Spring, you know she has plenty of reasons to be very spare with the information that she shares. And I think partly it's Jordan's construct of thinking of everyone like a soldier. In Moraine's mind, maybe only subconsciously, these people have all been conscripted by the light. The shadow wants you, and so you have to fight it. Sorry that you have to leave your village and the comfort of your simple life. It sucks to suck. The only one who volunteered for this was Egwene, and that's why she stands out. She's the type of soldier who volunteers. And I think that you can tell RJ's liking for her as he writes her later. It's because he identifies with her a lot. Her sense of rising to the occasion and managing to make the best of things and being reasonably happy and being the type of person who volunteers. RJ volunteered to join the army and I think that 
he just, he gets Egwene. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on Mordith. I'm a little bit ambivalent about him. Part of me feels like he's a little bit extra and that the evil of Mashadar is enough to make Shatter Logoth what it is. But Mashadar is mindless, so it really couldn't have mingled with Padden Fane's soul in a way that would be easy to show. I mostly feel RJ made pretty good use of Shatter Logoth. Um, I don't know that he had really thought it through when he first wrote Eye of the World, but he managed to take it and continue to keep it relevant. He used it in a number of key scenes, and, you know, he he included it in an ultimate, like, brilliant and logical purpose. But I'm not as fond of the scene with Mordith as far as what it does for the plot, but it does a good job of adding to the whole fear. There's a great description of all the watchers and like how they descend the stairs in the dark and Mordeth is super creepy and it's so obvious there's something not right about him which also gives you a chance to just judge the boys even more for how dumb they are and kind of bang your head against the wall like do they never learn but they get a break too. They get a moment to gawk and relax. They get to look at the majestic city. It's way cooler than Barlon. It's a ruin, but a magnificent one. And the novelty of exploration may have been really useful in, like, blunting some of the post-battle before Shatter Logoth trauma. It was so cool and interesting that they couldn't feel how off it was, maybe. Partly because they had no point of reference and... Maybe partly because it just wasn't as bad as when Rand goes back in book six to weave the trap on the way gate. And again, when he goes back at the end of book seven to fight Samael, which to be fair is maybe like a month after he weaves the trap on the way gate. They have a bit of returning to normal, like Land finds a building, he tells them to make a stable. And then Moraine makes another mistake. She assumes that they'll draw intelligent conclusions based on the knowledge Trollocs are afraid of this place. She doesn't tell them about the wards. She doesn't tell them about Mashadar. Her powerfully ingrained habit of being tight-lipped with her info, which, once again, if you've read New Spring, she's got a lot of reasons behind that. And also it's Sometimes the easiest thing to get cooperation out of people if they don't ask questions, you know, giving them info inspires more questions, but in this case, it causes a huge headache and endless consequences for problems. Perrin, being the most sensible and the most mature of the boys, is very reluctant to go exploring. His groundedness, it can make him a wet blanket, but it's also refreshing to have someone who has some common sense. When Matt wants to check out the city, he immediately thinks it's a bad idea. But the thing about Perrin is that he really wants to be liked, and he's very self-conscious. He doesn't like that a lot of people think he's dumb. And that makes him very susceptible to peer pressure. Like, the best he can do is 
we should ask Lorraine, which makes Matt scoff at him. Like, why don't you ask Mistress Lewin while you're at it? And I can really identify with Perrin, honestly, with the very strongly wanting to be liked. And having that friend with the, like, sharp sense of humor and the quick put-down who can get you to do what they want to do by making you feel awkward and dumb and so you give into it because you don't want to seem like the lame ass or they're just really good at making you feel stupid um you know matt's matt's an asshole you know matt does grow up and eventually while perrin and rand become grimmer and greater drags matt ends up becoming matt in a lot of ways has a really terrible fate and ends up becoming one of the best characters uh as far as like having a decent attitude um but he's a dick too he's not really a very good friend and yeah and he makes Perrin feel shitty about himself and Perrin ends up going out that night in Shatter Logoth, each person was most deeply fucked up by a different thing. We don't know with Matt. Like, it almost isn't even relevant because the dagger robs him of any memories of it, of most of his memories between Emmonsfield and Camelin and even after. And honestly, that's really, really sad because of what happens after they're separated, and particularly after Tom, quote-unquote, dies, what happens with him and Rand. Um, I feel like Matt and Rand's friendship is very tragic, and that the dagger robs their friendship of something, and I have opinions about that, and we'll go into that later. Heron's greatest fear of all of this. After Mashadar separates everyone and then they all run into the Trollocs, Moraine and Lon have to go ahead and everybody else is all in one group and then they run into Trollocs and they all yell this way and then they run in five different directions. Perrin ends up by himself and then he meets up with Egwene and they get out of the city. He felt a great relief once they were beyond the gate, even if there were Trollocs in the forest, or Fades. He stopped that line of thought. The bare branches were not enough to keep him from guiding on the Red Star, and they were beyond Mordith's reach now. That one had frightened him worse than the Trollocs ever had. Soon they would reach the river and meet more rain, and she would put them beyond the Trollocs' reach as well. He believed it because he needed to believe. The battle before Shatter Logoth had to be bad for Perrin, because Trollocs were like, they were pulling him out of the saddle before Lon kills the Murgrel. Like, he's trying to pull his axe away from them. But whatever it was about Mordith, like, Perrin didn't want to explore, like, he doesn't give a shit about treasure, he's an artist, and he definitely didn't want to follow the creepy man. Like, he follows Matt into the building because Rand says we can't leave him. Perrin does get distracted by the treasure, but when Mordith gets mad at them because he learns that they're not alone, 
um, that their journey doesn't stop in Camelin, which is a city he's never heard of. They're with an Aes Sedai and going to Tar Valen. At that point, Mordeth is like, oh shit, these are not ideal vessels for my evil. And he's really torn. He wants a body. You know, his second best option is maybe to let them take something. But Perrin, immediately when Mordeth is upset, you know, he's got this axe that's covered in golden chains. And he, you know, he, he gets into the treasure at first, but he sets it down and backs away. He's like, if you want, we'll come back and help you, but we're all down to fuck off, too, because obviously this isn't cool with you, and we'll go away. The creepy man scared Perrin worse than anything. Nynaeve admits that the terrifying mist scared her. There's no Egwene POVs until the next book, and she never reflects on anything, so we don't know what she found most troubling about it. But I'm really happy to delve into all of that. I have lots of thoughts and feelings about Egwene in the eye of the world and what her inner narrative might be. And I am really looking forward to going into that. Rand has a really horrible experience once he's on his own fleeing the Trollocs. He's got to ride his horse between these wavering gray tentacles of Mashadar, and there are Trollocs and a Fade behind him, and the Fade snatches a whip from its saddle bowl and bow and whips it over the Trollocs' heads to make them run after Rand. And even though Mashadar is floating along, and Mashadar catches the Trollocs and the Fade, and it says... Muzzled heads went back to scream, but fog rolled over open mouths and in, eating the howls. Four leg-thick tentacles whipped around the fade, and the half-man and its black horse twitched as if dancing, till the cowl fell back, bearing that pale, eyeless face. The fade shrieked. There was no sound from that cry, any more than from the Trollocs, but something came through, a piercing whine just beyond hearing, like all the hornets in the world, digging into Rand's ears with all the fear that could exist. Cloud convulsed as if he too heard and ran harder than ever. Rand hung on, panting, his throat as dry as sand. That had to have fucked him up. That is a horrible scene. But I honestly think, despite... How terrible having to leave Shatter Logoth in the middle of the night is. What's most traumatic to Rand is the separation of the party. He has the sense of responsibility to Egwene. And it's partly Two Rivers' gender norms. He feels that it's his job to protect her. Though, in fairness, he does have physical size and strength and a reasonable weapon, even though he's not very good at using it. Um, before Egwene and Nynaeve learned to channel, all they have is their belt knives, and in the face of dealing with Trollocs and stuff, it's not an unreasonable thing to expect to be able to provide protection to someone who really doesn't have a lot to be able to defend themselves with. I don't know that that's particularly chauvinistic when he says that he'll protect her take care of her when they're leaving Emmons Field once he realizes that 
he's not going to be able to talk her out of coming. Egwene's almost patronizing about his desire. He's like, I promise I'll take care of you. And she's like, maybe I'll take care of you, which I don't blame her for. Um, Egwene is not particularly thrilled with Two Rivers gender norms. I think that's a big part of her personality and what people think of her bullyingness or her bitchiness or whatever is actually just her not liking what people expect of her as a woman in the Two Rivers. Rand's courage, I think, was very much based on that whole theme of it's easier to be brave when someone needs you. As I've said, I love to cause myself anxiety because I'm masochistic by imagining terrible scenarios. So, you know, I think to myself, if someone breaks in when I'm alone, you know, what do I do? And it's like my immediate thought is, you know, I'm going to run. But if someone breaks in when my wife is home, what do I do? And my immediate instinct is I'm going to grab the first sharp thing I can find and I'm going to go toward the danger because what would stimulate my flight response when I'm by myself makes me utterly fearless when I need to protect someone. And I think Rand really depended on that. I think that he was prone to depression. Um, he had a lot of negative self-talk. I didn't really notice that until this last time that I read through. Um, it got pointed out in a podcast, in another Wheel of Time podcast, and I was suddenly like, whoa, that's totally true. I talk shit to myself a lot, but it's out of humor, and Rand's sense of humor really isn't that complicated, which I think is why he never understands the ideal sense of humor. Whereas I think ideal humor is great because I'm a terrible person and I think appalling things are funny. Rand had already lost Egwene in a lot of ways. He lost her when he expressed hesitancy about marrying and she was already past it, which stunned and hurt him. He lost her to Moraine. You know, the Aes Sedai basically stole his girlfriend. But he could at least hold on to the sense that he could protect her and it would help him retain his courage in the face of this awful fucking situation. And then he loses that and he doesn't know where she is or if she's alive or what's happening. And he's safe on a boat. And it's not just that he's safe on a boat, but he's safe on a boat with another friend and with a competent father figure who is smart and world-wise, and reasonably dangerous, and hell-bent on protecting him and Matt. And despite any of the other horrors he faced, just being separated, I think, was the worst for him. As far as Moraine and Lon and Tom go, I think it had to have been terrible for Moraine because everything that could go wrong did go wrong, but She's a soldier, and she held it all together. She refuses to countenance that the murder might have the boys, and she just moves on and works to get them back. Lon is very fatalistic. And for Tom, while I'm sure the experience was terrible, I almost feel like Tom came out of it feeling reasonably cheerful about himself, because he managed to save two of the three boys, 
not only save them from the horrible murder city, but save them from an Aes Sedai. He got them away from her, and I feel like that left him feeling pretty damn good about himself. So no matter how horrible dealing with Shatter Logoth was, I think he was probably very much buffered by this sense that however wrong he did by his nephew, he did right by these two boys on this terrible night. The two weeks from winter night to when they get to Shatter Logoth are filled with shitty and stressful events. But that day and night, they started being chased around noontime and they had to leave the city maybe around midnight. So just 12 horrible hours of fleeing and fighting and fear and crouching in this awful city. That night was so singularly awful and cemented by the final trauma of being separated and not knowing if the others lived. I feel like focusing on the dagger as a symbol rather than the memories almost leaves something to be desired. But I've never faced a violent trauma, and maybe my default setting after facing horrifying monsters and fleeing a murder city would be to try not to think about it and not spend a lot of time dwelling on how fucked up and awful it was. And since there are no therapists in Randland, and they have an extensive number of stressful things that will continue to happen to them over the next several days, maybe it's logical that they don't think about it too much. RJ wrote the standalone story that is the eye of the world, not knowing how much he was going to be able to make the Wheel of Time into, and so much happens in The Great Hunt that I suppose reflecting on Shadow Logoth after the fact isn't useful. I mean, maybe it's enough that I reread and reflect on it and give it the time and the attention to look at it and take in the scene and say, this is a before and after story. How before and after is it? Is it just the before and after of before they were together and after they were separate? Or is it the more profound before and after of before they were together and their journey had been stressful and dangerous and there had been a lot of really scary things and most everyone in the party was deeply mistrustful of their leader and after they were lost and alone and they really missed that person that they had distrusted so much and they were scarred deeply, deeply scarred by what was very likely the most horrible experience of their lives up until that point. Tom had to know something of Shatter Logoth. Lon is a borderland lord and educated, but Moraine had the majority of the knowledge because she was trained in the White Tower. She knew what they faced, and she knew with the dragon reborn in the offing what they could lose. And I think she may very well have been the most frightened of anyone that night, because she had all of that knowledge, and unlike her warder, she just doesn't have the same fatalism that Lon had. But she was so good at being calm and controlled with her fear, because that's what I said I do. 
That's why I said I train. They're badass special forces lady mages, and if they do it well, they're pure essence of leadership and keeping cool under fire and never letting you know they're afraid. And some of I said I do that by being blustery and shitty leaders. And then you get people like Moraine, who despite her flaws and some of the dumb things she does, and she does some dumb shit, and considering everything that she knew, the fact that she was so cool-headed when they got separated by the mist, she was just like, stop, don't move, follow the star, keep together, I'll find you, just purely calm, really admirable. She's on the whole a really good and adaptable soldier, and she's a good leader, and she's very courageous. And I think Moraine is the kind of person who handles those kind of traumatic situations so well. And it's not that she's not phased by it, but that she compartmentalizes it. She's a natural soldier. Or she just doesn't have the time for it, and so she shoves it down like so many people do. Because the bottom line is the world is ending, and once the last battle is over, then they can all fall to pieces and I do think sometimes how many shattered and fucked up people that there will be to build the new age because of the horrifying things we're exposed to in this series and the stuff people will have to carry. And on that depressing note, I think I'll bring this episode to an end. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Podcast of the Dragon. I'm really excited to see where the podcast is going to go. I love The Wheel of Time, and it has a whole bunch of wonderful themes and subject matter to explore. I think it's going to be great. I appreciate you listening and coming along on the journey with me. I'm excited. You can find me on Twitter at Order Gray. That's Gray with an E. Check out Watt Trivia and Games. There's a link to the Discord at Trivia Watt. It's a cool Discord. There's a whole bunch of great people that you can hang out with. There's a whole bunch of games you can play, a bunch of teams that you can get on. There's a content hub where you can find a whole bunch of different Watt content creators. Podcast of the Dragon has its own channel on that Discord. If you want to come and talk to me, give me some questions, constructive criticism, ideas for future episode topics. If you want to just uh, drop me a line at podcastofthedragon at gmail.com instead, I'd love hearing from you. My music is by Kevin McLeod. I'm the Grave Warder. And when I was 19, I would totally have assisted that creepy man in carrying his cursed treasure out of the murder city because I like to help people. Also, I really was just that dumb. <laughs>